Lord, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for your, your, your greatness, your blessedness. We thank you that you have done so much for us and now we have the opportunity to remember that. Would you guide us during this time and would you help us to keep our minds focused on what is truly important? Uh, your love, your death, your resurrection, all that you've done for us. Help us to keep that in mind today, not only through communion, but throughout this service. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We are going to be taking the Lord's Supper together this morning. Um, and uh, if you've looked ahead in your bulletin to see the notes, and if you've been following along in the book of Matthew, you will be seeing that our sermon today is going to be on the ministry of reconciliation, to reconcile with one another. And uh, I think this is a, actually a very, very good week as we talk about that, to talk about the Lord, to go and have the Lord's Supper together. And, and many of you have heard this before, and you know this is how we stand here, but if you know the little bit of the history that Paul is addressing in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, it seems to be that in their church there's lots of division, there's lots of fighting, there's lots of rivalry, there is lots of uh, battles back and forth, and that has shown up even at the time that they come together to observe the Lord's Supper. Some are eating without others, going ahead and, and, and eating and drinking more than they should and before they should and all these other things are happening as Paul addresses the Corinthian church. And I find it interesting that when he addresses them to say, what is it that you should be doing as a church? Yes, he tells them they need to be united in the book of First Corinthians, but what is the core of that unity? Where does that unity come from? Not just by deciding to be nice people, not just because, well, it's just what you're supposed to do. But unity in the body of Christ is only as a result of the death of Jesus. That the death of Jesus, the shedding of his blood, the breaking of his body, that Paul reminds the Corinthian church of here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he says this is what you need to remember. What you need to remember for the purpose so that you will continue to have unity with one another. Really to have reconciliation with one another. Through Jesus' death he brought reconciliation not only between us and God but us and one another. And so today we are going to go into 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we normally do, as we take communion together, but keeping in mind that this is, yes, a time for us to remember the death that Jesus paid, the, the price that he paid for our salvation, that yes, he lived that perfect life, but then died a death that we, need, that we deserve to die and then eventually would rise again as well to prove his power over sin and death. And we remember all of that as we come to communion, but we also remember that it's through the death of Jesus that we can be here today together as a body and it's because of the death of Jesus that what we're about to hear from Matthew 18 can even happen. That there can be reconciliation between people who believe in Jesus because Jesus is the glue that holds us together. So as we take communion today, let us keep in mind, yes, this is our opportunity to remember what Jesus has done for us personally and for us corporately. That we remember this is a time that Jesus died for our forgiveness, yes, of course, and for our eternal life so that we could be born again to a new life, and that is all true. But we also remember that Jesus died to bring us together as well. And so as we do this today, would you just join me as we think through this, as we go into 1 Corinthians chapter 11, remembering that Jesus died to bring us together as one of the things that he did. He brought unity through his death. And so... As we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as we're familiar with, we start in verse 23, and I, I could have read before this. This is after Paul has already said, listen, you're not doing what you're supposed to do during the Lord's Supper. This is, this is what you're supposed to do when he comes to verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's now... Take this bread and remember the broken body of Jesus for us and for our unity. Let's take. As Paul continues to remember the first, or remind the first Corinthian, the Corinthian church, as Jesus reminded his disciples the first time they shared this meal together, or the last time they shared this meal together, I should say. Jesus moved on and so does Paul and not just remembering the body that Jesus broke on the cross to, to take the punishment for our sin but then also wanted us to remember the new covenant 
the new promise, the reconciliation that we have through the blood of Jesus, what gives us forgiveness, what gives all of us forgiveness as we then now can forgive one another. And so Paul says in verse 25, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us take. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time we've had this morning. We thank you for your provision, not only physically but spiritually, Lord, that you provided for us through your death. You broke your body, you shed your blood for our forgiveness. God, that you broke your body for our good and for your glory. And God, we also thank you this morning that you died to bring us together as one body. God, would you help us today as we continue to worship together to be blessed in our fellowship and to give you glory in the way that we respond to your word. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a good way to set up our time together in the Word this morning. Jesus really does care about our relationships with other followers of Jesus. Husbands and wives, parents and children, grandparents and grandchildren, friends, dating couples, brothers and sisters. Jesus cares about your relationships, especially when those relations are also followers of Jesus. Jesus cares about how your behavior affects other followers of Jesus and how it can affect the whole church. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Kingdom Life Discourse, Jesus elevated the importance of reconciled relationships among his followers so much so that if you suddenly realize that another church member might possibly be angry with you, you should press the pause button on your formal acts of worship and go immediately to seek reconciliation with your brother or sister. That's Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Reconciled relationships between believers are of paramount importance. When relationships are strained, usually sin is involved. Thus later in the Kingdom Life Discourse, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, Jesus instructs us about the loving art of speck removal how to help a brother get a speck of sawdust out of his eye, which is a metaphor for helping a brother deal with sin in his life. This is not necessarily an occasion where there is sin that's damaging a relationship. This is simply a sin that has been observed. If you see me sin, you have a responsibility, a loving responsibility, to help me deal with it. In Matthew 7... Jesus focused on the preparation needed for you to be effective in helping a brother deal with his sin. You have to be recognizing and dealing with your own sin, which might mean you're actively seeking help with your own struggles with sin. As you take responsibility for your own sin, you're in a position to help your siblings. When we put these two passages together, we can see that sin is always a relational matter a community issue. Even in cases where my sin is private, it affects my relationship with my family. Matthew 7 is worded in such a way that it's clear that each one of us has a responsibility to address sin when we see it, both in ourselves and in other church members. Certainly, Jesus isn't advocating a busybody spirit or an attitude of sin-hunting, Even as each one of us has a responsibility to help each other in this church deal with their sins, we must do this from a starting point, default posture that seeks to assume the best about each other. In Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, Jesus revisits this topic and elaborates on it significantly. However, before we go there, I want to mention one other passage of Scripture that I think will help us frame this discussion appropriately. 
The Apostle Paul speaks of the ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 to 21. Follow along as I read those verses and make some comments along the way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Genuine followers of Jesus really are new people. We're not simply in the process of becoming new, although there is some truth in that way of putting it. There really is something fundamentally new about who we are the moment we begin trusting Jesus. God has created a new person, a person in Christ. Verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So it's not just Paul and the apostles who have the ministry of reconciliation. The same us who have been reconciled to God through Christ are the us to whom God has given the ministry of reconciliation. In verse 19, he'll elaborate on this ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So this grand reconciliation has to do with the forgiveness of sins, not counting their trespasses against them. The message that God has made a way through Jesus Christ that sinners can have their sins not counted against them is the ministry of reconciliation that God has given to us. In verse 20, Paul connects this to his own ministry in Corinth. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So, when Paul preaches the gospel, when Paul declares that forgiveness of sins can be received as a gift from God through Jesus Christ, it's actually God who is speaking that message through the voice of Paul. Continuing on in verse 20, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Continuing on into chapter 6, verse 1, Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now think about this for a moment. Paul is writing this to a church, the church in Corinth. He's writing to a group of people, presumably made up of a number of individuals who have truly, genuinely been reconciled to God. And yet... The behavior of at least some of the Corinthians has caused Paul to call them to be reconciled to God and to remind them plainly of Jesus taking their place, being condemned as a sinner in their place. Some of them are not reflecting the righteousness of God in their lives. Some of them are not living as the new creation From the larger context of 2 Corinthians, we know that one problem they were having had to do with their reception of Paul himself. They had been led astray by some false teachers. Nevertheless, they were accountable. And Paul indicates that the false teachers and any who follow them away need to be reconciled to God. Their dissent with Paul, could we even say their unreconciled relationship with Paul, was so severe that the relationship with God was being called into question by their behavior. So Paul appeals to them again. He wants them to receive, to not to receive God's grace in vain. In other words, he doesn't want them to merely hear Paul's words without heeding them. He wants them to listen to his gospel, and respond appropriately by repenting and trusting in Jesus, and thus be reconciled with God and also with Paul. Thus, I think it's important to see that reconciliation with God is supposed to include reconciliation with other people in the church. To refuse to be reconciled with another believer in your church 
or to refuse to admit your sin when it is confronted by someone in your church might be an indication that you are not reconciled to God. Jesus' instruction in Matthew 18, 15 to 20 bears this out. In these verses, Jesus lays out a straightforward, four-step process for dealing with sin that is observed in the church. Actually, ideally, it's only a one-step process. But Jesus presents us with a series of hypotheticals in order to paint for us the worst-case scenario. It's significant to reflect on this fact for just a moment. Jesus wants us to expect that this process will have to be followed at least in some churches, at least some of the time. Thus, Jesus expects that churches are going to be assemblies of his followers, among whom sin will continue to be normal. Let that sink in. At the same time, however, Jesus gives us this process for dealing with sin to give us an additional expectation. Yes, sin will be normal among followers of Jesus, but actually dealing with sin openly and freely should also be normal. Matthew chapter 18 has sometimes been referred to as Jesus' community discourse, and I'm referring to it as the kingdom church discourse. He's instructing his disciples on what their life as a church, as the assembly of God's people, should look like. Thus far in the chapter... He's had a lot to say about dealing with stumbling and sin. He's referred to his disciples in this chapter as both little ones and sheep. In the immediately preceding paragraph, verses 10 to 14, he told a parable about a shepherd who pursues wandering sheep and rejoices when he rescues the wandering one from danger. He concludes that parable in verse 14 this way, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Verses 15 to 20, therefore, serve as an explanation for how it is that our Heavenly Father preserves us from perishing with the assumption that we continue to sin, continue to stumble, continue to wander throughout our lives as followers of Jesus. Perhaps surprisingly, it seems that Jesus is going to say that His Father preserves us from perishing through the loving confrontation of our brothers and sisters. Commentator Stanley Hauerwas writes, A community capable of protecting the little ones, a community who cares for the lost sheep, is a community that cannot afford to overlook one another's sins, because doing so keeps the community from embodying the life of grace determined by God's forgiveness through the sacrifice of His Son. He goes on a bit later, This is a people who are to love one another so intensely that they refuse to risk the loss of the one who has gone astray or the loss of ourselves in harboring resentments. So let's hear what Jesus has to say once again. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. And I'll be reading this passage from the 1995 edition of the New American Standard Bible. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. This paragraph is all about family dynamics. How brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow disciples, should treat each other in certain situations. And in the midst of this instruction, Jesus will refer to the collective group of these siblings as the church. Those God has gathered together in particular places as the assembly of people Jesus is building globally. Thus, we ought to view each other who gather together regularly here as brothers and sisters. 
We are those who claim to be adopted into the family of God as we trust Jesus, the true Son of God. Jesus begins this discussion of family dynamics by focusing on occasions when one of our siblings sins. The process Jesus lays out here applies to the broad situation in which one church member sees another church member sinning in some way. The person being addressed, therefore, isn't necessarily the victim of the other person's sin. Seeing it this way still applies to situations of interpersonal conflict and personal sin. But Jesus is speaking very broadly here, as he was in the speck removal passage in Matthew 7. Thus, step one of Jesus' process is private correction. When you see someone who is a part of your church sin in some way, what can that look like? Let's give some examples. You hear her make assumptions about another church member and then say judgmental things about that person. You catch him looking at illicit material on his computer. You watch someone succumbing to slavery to alcohol or other addictive substances. Your friend goes around boasting about how many Bible verses he's memorized. You find out that your friend has been abandoning responsibilities left and right, withdrawing from the world because of depression. Or you notice that your fellow church member hasn't participated in a church gathering in a long while. Or, yes, in situations where someone has sinned directly against you, your spouse or your parent explodes in anger toward you. You discover that your friend lied to you when he told you he was sick and couldn't give you a ride home. Your older brother made fun of you when you made a mistake. In any of these kinds of situations, Jesus says, you, whether the witness or the victim, have the responsibility to approach this person in private and have a private conversation about this apparently sinful behavior. On some occasions, you may also be a witness to someone sinning against someone else. Even though you're not the victim, you still have a responsibility to approach the person privately. In that case, it becomes a matter of justice. Not only are you acting on your community responsibility, your family responsibility, but you're also expressing love for the victim. Notice also, as John MacArthur rightly observes, if you see a brother sin, the wrong first response is to report his sin to church leaders or to anyone else. The responsibility to confront sin that defiles the church lies with the first person to become aware of the sin. However, like most relational processes, there are exceptions to this pattern. Don't view the call to private correction as a universal absolute. As Jonathan Lehman writes, there might be times when you need to get counsel from a pastor before confronting a brother or sister for sin. There might be times when you need someone to confront sin on someone else's behalf, as with a woman who feels unsafe confronting a man who has made inappropriate advances. But in most cases, private correction should be the first step. So what does this look like? Privately, you could say something like, I care about your soul, and I want to help you live well, following Jesus in every area of your life. I heard what you said about so-and-so the other day, and I was wondering if what you said might be the kind of judgmentalism or gossip that the Bible clearly condemns. Or, if you were sinned against in some way, you could say something like, what you said or what you did, and you'd want to be real specific and precise here, what you said or what you did really hurt me. I'm struggling with the pain of what you did, and I want to work things out. The goal, according to Jesus, is to get the other person to listen to you. Now, Jesus isn't merely saying that he wants the other person to acknowledge the sounds coming out of your mouth. Rather, Jesus wants the other person to heed your words, to admit the validity of the observation and repent. 
Turn away from whatever sinful behavior has been observed. This is how wandering sheep are kept within the fold. This is the ministry of reconciliation on a horizontal level. Those who have been reconciled with God still sin. And when they sin, listen, when they sin, their reconciliation with God is not damaged or affected. Okay? They remain reconciled to God. However, their relationship with other people is damaged, particularly with the individuals they've harmed by their behavior. But even when the sin is something like cheating on a tax return, there's still a need for reconciliation. Every sin, even where there is no specific personal victim, affects a person's relationship with the church of which they are a part. Even if the sin remains private and unknown to others, it affects the person in such a way that he or she relates to others in the church differently. Those of us who have struggled with secret sin, like looking at pornography, know this to be true. Even though no one knows what we've been looking at, we view the people around us differently. We live in fear of being caught. We view ourselves as hypocrites. We worry that we might be on a path to greater sin where our lust could get so out of control that we actually acted against women sinfully, physically. Or we find ourselves looking at the women in our church with lust and we're ashamed. Thus the whole church is affected by our withdrawal, by our continued hiding. We remain unknown to others. We keep others at a distance. We eventually withdraw from serving others altogether. Thus, Jesus' process here is intended to reconcile us to the whole church, to restore our relationship with our family. You have won your brother, not just for yourself, but for the whole family. Ideally, the other person would respond by saying something like, Oh, you're right. I'm so sorry. I'll seek to make it right and accept the consequences of my actions. And if it was a personal sin, he or she would say something like, I see that what I said or what I did was really hurtful to you, and it was displeasing to God. Please forgive me. Then you hug or shake hands or something, and you go on with normal life. There are exceptions here, too. Sometimes forgiveness does not and cannot result in a reconciled relationship, such as in the case of abuse. But Jesus knows that the person might respond differently. Instead of admitting his sin and repenting, he might deny it or seek to justify it or explain it away. Or in a situation of personal sin, she might say, you're just being sensitive. You know I didn't mean that. I didn't do anything wrong. But you still feel hurt, and you still believe that the other person has indeed sinned. And you can't just overlook it. Either way, the person is not listening the way Jesus intends. So then, step two must commence. Private conference. Jesus says that you should get a friend or two who can mediate. If you witnessed or heard the person's sin, this should be, most of the time the first time you have mentioned the matter to anyone else. Take them with you to talk with the person again. So, y'all go together to talk with the person, and you tell the person again, with love and gentleness, that you believe that they have sinned. And it's important enough that you believe it's an issue that's affecting them negatively or others around them, even though they don't see it. In a situation of personal sin, you might say, look... I know we already talked about this, but I still feel hurt. This is what you said. This is what you did. It really hurt me, and I don't think we can move forward until we sort this out. The other parties you've invited might say something like, Friend, we're here for both of you. We want to listen to what both of you have to say and see if this might be perhaps a misunderstanding. We want to help provide some perspective for both of you. Then, after the person who sinned, 
talks about what happened, and the friends ask some clarifying questions and provide some insight into the situation, ideally, the person would respond by saying something like, oh, you're right, I'm so sorry. I now see that what I said or what I did was sinful, was really hurtful to you, was displeasing to God. Please forgive me. Thanks, friends, for helping us sort this out. And then you hug or shake hands or something, and you go on with normal life. Another possible outcome at this point is that your witnesses help you realize that you were mistaken. That this is an issue that you can, out of love, overlook. In that case, it's quite appropriate to apologize and to ask the other person to forgive you. It's good in these cases to reaffirm your love and concern for the person and that you would welcome their own assistance when they see you sinning. But, of course, Jesus acknowledges that it doesn't always go so well. The person who sinned might say, Wait a minute, why are you ganging up on me like this? I haven't done anything wrong. Why are you telling our business to other people? If the person responds with defensiveness, Jesus has this to say in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This third step of the process, public announcement, requires great wisdom and great sensitivity. Jesus simply gives us these steps, but he doesn't indicate how long each step of the process should take. How many times could you go to a person who sinned privately while she continues refusing to admit it before you get others involved? Once you get others involved, if the person continues to remain stubborn, when do you widen the circle to the whole church family? Each case is unique. Jesus wisely doesn't lay down any rules here. Assumed behind all of this is the high value of every individual believer, every individual member of the church. We might wonder if it's worth it to go through this process. Most of us might default into the spirit of the age, which says it's none of my business and I should leave well enough alone. Or we can settle into that mentality that devalues ourselves, whereby we assume that we're probably wrong, we're probably mistaken, we shouldn't say anything. Or we can be so afraid of the awkwardness of confrontation that we just remain silent, no matter how much it hurts us or others. Listen, Jesus places such a high value on each person in his flock And Jesus sees sin as such a dangerous threat to the well-being of his sheep that he insists that we must take sin very seriously and act when it is committed, inflicted, or witnessed. Jesus portrays the sinning brother as a valuable treasure to be won back, in the words of John MacArthur. However, we are not judges seeking to condemn We are not police seeking to catch someone in the act. And we're not critics seeking to demean. Rather, we are brothers. We are sisters who care very much about the well-being of our family and of every member of our family. We are our brother's keeper. We are our sister's keeper. If it comes to it, we care enough about the health of the family to report to the whole family that one of our members is in danger. As our one biblical counselor puts it, from one-on-one confrontations to telling it to the church, followers of Jesus must be like the soft-hearted shepherd who searches high and low for the stubborn, wayward sheep. But what is the danger exactly? What's at stake in the whole process? We need to talk about the final step in the rest of verse 17, public exclusion, before we can answer that question clearly. If the person has been gently, lovingly led through the first three steps of this process, and at each stage this person continues to maintain his or her innocence, refusing to listen when the united testimony is that genuine sin has been committed with specific biblical conviction, even when the whole church family agrees that sin has been committed and has lovingly admonished the person to repent, then Jesus says... And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Beware of the refusal to listen. The person might respond in outrage at this point. How dare you smear my name and reputation before this church? 
If the person holds on to his defensiveness and continues to refuse to admit that he's in the wrong, when everybody who's gotten involved agrees that he's done wrong, and that's a key point, the goal in getting others involved is to establish the facts of the matter. Then the person is to be treated radically different. For a recalcitrant, hard-hearted, hard-headed, stubborn refusal to listen, the conclusion to this process of loving confrontation is an unhappy one indeed. You must consider this stubborn person to be like a Gentile and a tax collector. For Jesus' Jewish disciples, he is using Jewish categories of thought. What's he saying? Simply put, Jesus is saying you need to consider this person to be an unbeliever. Jesus is saying you need to see this person as outside the community of faith, outside the family of God. At the beginning of the process, you approach this person as a brother or a sister. You approach them as family. You assume that they were family because of their profession of faith in Jesus, because of their life of obedience up to this point. But now, their negative participation in this process results in a new assessment, and you can no longer assume that. You can no longer affirm their profession of faith. You can no longer see this person as a brother or sister. Now, this says nothing certain about the truth about this person. Okay? Jesus only tells us how to approach this person, what assumption to make about his or her identity. His or her behavior has caused, called into question their profession of faith. And this sinful behavior, as it has been reviewed by the church family who knows this person, results in an expulsion or excommunication, as it's often called. Commentator Stanley Hauerwas writes, Yet excommunication is an act of love. But rather, excommunication is not to throw someone out of the church but rather an attempt to help them see that they have become a stumbling block and are, therefore, already out of the church. We have an example of this outcome in the New Testament, in the church of Corinth, where we began our message this morning. Paul had to oversee the church's expulsion of one of their members. It seems that the church of Corinth has not followed Jesus' instruction with regard to a man who developed a sexual relationship with his stepmother, The church knew about this, yet instead of challenging this man and this woman to repent, they seem to have ignored it. 1 Corinthians 5.1 indicates that this was reported to Paul. So apparently somebody was displeased with the situation but didn't find the support of the church to help, so they appealed to the Apostle Paul. Perhaps they didn't know Jesus' teaching on this matter. Paul was very direct Since the facts were well established, Paul simply commands, 1 Corinthians 5, 5, let him who has done this, 5, 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. But then he adds an explanation of just what this kind of expulsion, this excommunication really means. 1 Corinthians 5, 5 begins, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Whoa. Let's take in the seriousness of this for just a moment. I raised the question earlier of just what kind of danger a person, a church member, who refuses to repent of sin is in. The danger is this, and let me personalize this. My long-term refusal to repent when my sin is exposed and confronted puts me in danger of being exposed as a fraud, a wolf in sheep's clothing or at least a goat, a non-believer, a false disciple. My claim to believe in Jesus would be proven false, or at least shown to be doubtful. Refusal to repent reveals one to still be a citizen of Satan's kingdom. So, when Paul says expelling someone from membership in a local church means turning that person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, he means kicking a goat out of the sheep pen where he's been enjoying certain benefits that were not rightfully his. You see, being a part of a church, even if you're not a believer, provides a measure of spiritual protection that's not available anywhere else. But 
but being exposed as potentially a wolf in sheep's clothing or a confused goat who thinks he's a sheep and being sent outside the fellowship, outside the safety of the sheepfold, will result in an increased vulnerability to satanic trouble. God will allow Satan to do more damage in your life outside the church. Think about it. When a non-believer lives among believers for a while, the non-believer enjoys certain privileges. He gets to hear God's word preached. He receives loving care by believers. Undoubtedly, believers will be praying for him. That mere exposure to God's word, that simple care from others... Those positive spiritual influences do truly have an impact in the spiritual realm. We often worry about the damage Satan can do to the church through his servants infiltrating our churches. But I believe Satan is more worried about about and threatened by the power of God at work in our churches. Nevertheless, Jesus and Paul agree that someone who has claimed to be a sheep claim to be a follower of Jesus, but whose refusal to repent of sin calls into question the truth of that person's claim poses a threat to the health of the church such that this person should be excluded from the fellowship of the church. For the man in the Corinthian church who had committed incest, Paul commands the church to remove him, to exclude him, and to disassociate from him, turning him over to Satan. But this action has a redemptive goal. Continuing in 1 Corinthians 5.5, Paul writes, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, think about that. What that means is that as he's out there, presumably being in Satan's realm will result, ironically, in Satan damaging this man's life and lusts. Perhaps his lust will be allowed to grow and blossom into their terrible self-destruction. Whereas in the context of the church family, they could have been curbed and limited. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So this person is to be sent out of the church right now, so that on judgment day, he might be saved rather than condemned. God's goal in this radical action is to wake you up to move you to repentance, to put you in a position where you will admit your rebellion and run to Jesus as the only Savior of your life. Likewise, in Jesus' instruction, think of how Jesus treated Gentiles and tax collectors just in the Gospel of Matthew. Two Gentiles were commended for their great faith and received merciful treatment by Jesus. Matthew himself, the author of this Gospel, was summoned out of his tax booth And then Jesus went to party with a bunch of tax collectors at his house. Nevertheless, from a Jewish standpoint, Jesus is saying that the person who has been within the sheepfold, who has sinned in some publicly verifiable way, and yet refuses the loving approach of his family to help him repent of this specific sin, then this person must be treated as an outsider, no longer treated as a family member. But that makes this person immediately in the position of someone who needs to receive the gospel. Who needs to hear the gospel yet again. Needing the church to be seeking them out in love. To be brought back into the fold. The love of the church. The love of individual believers. And ultimately the love of God himself is on display at this point. That should be, it should be expressed in a different way. True followers of Jesus are not perfect or sinless. Rather, they admit their sin freely, knowing with total confidence that all of their sins have been truly and totally forgiven. We know that Jesus took the condemnation that we deserve, so that there is not now, nor will there ever be, any condemnation from God for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, Jesus adds three sentences that have been misunderstood, taken out of context, and misapplied quite often. The words of verses 18 to 20 are intended to explain why the church has the authority 
to do what they must do in cases that come to the end of verse 17. Simply put, the church's decision in these matters, the church's decision to expel one of its members, is guided from heaven to earth by Jesus. In verse 18, he repeats what he had said to Peter back in Matthew 16, 19. In that context, Jesus had given Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which we argued Peter would use by preaching the gospel. He'd bind and loose those who heard him preach the gospel based on their response to that gospel message. Thus, we argued that binding essentially refers to refusing entry into the kingdom of heaven based on a person's rejection of the gospel message. And loosing refers to granting entry into the kingdom of heaven based on their acceptance of the gospel message. Here, Jesus extends this authority to the whole church. Whereas in Matthew 16, Jesus focused on the initial entry of someone into the kingdom of heaven, which is connected to their entry into the church on earth. Here in Matthew 18, Jesus focuses on the recognition of their status in the church on earth. This connection helps us acknowledge the obvious fact that our binding and loosing is not always accurate. Still in Matthew 16, Jesus promised that Peter, and by extension the church, would receive God's guidance from heaven in the process unfolding on earth. Churches have welcomed into membership individuals who turn out to be unbelievers. Wolves really do rise up in the church. They were always wolves, even though they were welcomed as sheep at some point. Thus, the exercise of the keys, the binding and loosing, is an ongoing responsibility of the church. And Jesus still promises God's guidance in this process, even as he allows us, for his mysterious purposes, to make mistakes at times. Look at Matthew eighteen eighteen again, which reads in the New American Standard, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Jesus said this exact same thing to Peter back in Matthew sixteen nineteen. There, we learned that we can expect and depend on God's guidance when we welcome a person who professes faith in Christ into the fellowship and membership of our church based on their acceptance of the gospel message. However, when that same person goes through the process of Matthew 18 and refuses to repent of sin, we can expect and depend on God's guidance if we expel that person from our fellowship with the hope that this drastic, dramatic, and desperate act will result in the person's later repentance and return into our fellowship. Jesus explains, elaborates on what this guidance looks like in verses 19 and 20. These verses are often isolated and misapplied generally to prayer, but Jesus emphatically connects these statements with what he has just been saying. Again I say to you, That if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. These verses are often quoted in isolation in prayer meetings, or perhaps just verse 20. The reference to two of you in verse 19 and the reference to two or three in verse 20 both refer back to the two or three witnesses in verse 16. Thus, Jesus is commenting specifically on this process. The generality of anything they may ask is limited by the context. Jesus has assumed throughout the process that those involved in confronting a person's sin will be praying, asking for guidance, illumination to see the truth of what has happened, asking for the Holy Spirit to soften the heart of the one who has sinned so that he'll confess, repent, and be reconciled to the family. And in response to the common ripping of these verses out of context and applying them to prayer meetings, commentator David Turner writes, the flippant way in which 1819 is often cited to assure small meetings of Christians that God is with them is disturbing because it twists a solemn passage into a cliché. No doubt God is present with any legitimate meeting of His people, whatever its size, and there's no need to mishandle Scripture to prove it. Taking this solemn passage out of context cheapens it and profanes the sacred duty of the church to maintain the harmony 
of its interpersonal relationships. And so, not taking this verse out of context, we can avoid the trap that people fall into of making this some kind of blank check for prayer. The promise of verse 20 does not have to do with Jesus being somehow more present with a couple of believers when they pray. Jesus is present in and with every individual believer all the time. He cannot be more present in one situation than another. And there is no promise in Scripture that I know of that the more people pray, the more likely God is to answer a particular prayer in a particular way. Some, I think, have taken this verse as though it actually taught that. It's a remarkable statement that Jesus makes, though. He's essentially claiming to be God here since he's claiming to be wherever his followers are. But he's specifically promising his direct involvement in this process. As the circle of confrontation widens, believers asked to be involved in confronting a person who has sinned shouldn't be afraid or anxious or resistant to help out. Confrontation like this can be terrifying and awkward. Out of fear, we might be tempted to simply say something like, well, I'll just pray for that person and ask the Lord to help him see the light. John MacArthur responds, that may not be enough. You have the light. Go shine it in his eyes. Jesus is saying that wherever two or three are gathered together in his name to deal with an issue of sin in the community, sin in the church, Jesus will be there to help at every step of the way. He didn't just give us commandments and then leave us and wish us well in our obeying. He promised to be with us, to help us obey, even this command in this difficult situation. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Something that brackets the Gospel of Matthew and pops up again right here in the very middle. Jesus is with us all the time, even in this situation where sin is rampant. This is the same truth pictured to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1, where he sees Jesus standing in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which represent the churches gathering bodily on the earth, while also at the same time being seated in the heavenly places, to borrow a a phrase from Paul. And if you remember, what follows that vision in Revelation 1 is the letters to those seven churches. And in every one of those letters, save one, They were handling sin in their church. There were issues of sin being dealt with in their churches, or not being dealt with, as the case may be. And Jesus is depicting in that vision His presence with the church, even as they deal with issues such as false teaching and unrepentant sin. Jesus is the one who brings heaven and earth together. His his presence with and in His church is the reason we can have confidence that our binding and loosing on earth can match up with what has been bound and what has been loosed in heaven. But there is a tinge of warning in this statement as well. For the one who sins, for the one who has refused to listen to the one who first confronted him about his sin, for the one who refused to listen to the pleading of friends, for the one who has refused to listen to the church at large, you may be found to be rejecting the loving approach of Jesus Himself and His Father. I'd like to close by quoting a passage from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's little book, Life Together. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. But in confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought to the light. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders. He gives up all his evil. He gives his heart to God 
and he finds the forgiveness of all his sin in the fellowship of Jesus Christ and his brother. The expressed, acknowledged sin has lost all its power. It has been revealed, for he has cast off his sin from him. Now he stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God and the cross of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you acknowledging our own sin We are a broken people. We commit treason against you every day. We thank you for the sufficiency of the death of our Savior to cover all of that. Our rebellion, our sin, our failures, all of it covered by the blood of Jesus. But you've given us this instruction to help us live free of its power. And we pray that we would take advantage of that. That we would take our responsibility in caring for our brothers and sisters seriously. And we would welcome, we would welcome when someone looks at our life and says something's wrong. Help us to see clearly how we need to abandon our pride and be willing to allow the inspection of other people into our lives. We welcome your inspection only because we're so confident that there is no condemnation that you're ever going to to present against us. May we be confident in that even as we seek to deal with our sin together as family. Help us, help us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.